Welcome to All About Capital Campaigns, a podcast that provides fuel for your nonprofit's growth. Each week, hosts Andrea Kilstedt and Amy Eisenstein, co-founders of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, provide practical tips about raising more money for your nonprofit organization. The Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders who are running capital campaigns. At CapitalCampaignToolkit.com, you can download a step-by-step guide for your capital campaign and get many other free resources. This podcast is recorded on a live webinar every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join the live session and get your questions answered by signing up today at ToolkitTalks.com. Day is right around the corner, right? September is right around the corner, which is a little jarring to me anyway, and to Amy. I mean, it's hard to imagine where this summer all went. But if you're like most of us in the fundraising world, when we start thinking about Labor Day and after Labor Day, we start thinking about this whole period of fundraising, which is annual fundraising at the towards the end of the year, right? We go right smack into fundraising mode with annual fundraising of one sort or another. Fundraising you do year in, year out to raise money for your operating budget. And you probably do it in a variety of ways. And, and coming up right now, you are probably beginning to at least dream about it, if not think about it, right? It's going around your brain. One of the topics that we hear most often in the Capital Campaign Toolkit is this question of how we keep a capital campaign from cannibalizing the annual fund, right? Everyone going into a capital campaign where you're going to be asking people for large gifts, larger than they usually give to your annual fund, is worried that the people you ask for those large campaign gifts are not going to give to your annual fund anymore because they're giving much bigger gifts to you for something else. And that's a serious and important question. And honestly, one of the reasons I love that question is that I love being able to use the word cannibalize. How many times in a lifetime do you get to use that word? (laughs) Not very many. So we decided that we would talk today about how capital campaigns and annual fundraising play together and how they play together well, how they play together nicely. Now, before I turn it over to Amy for her thoughts, I'll tell you one more related topic to this is this question that many of you are moving your annual fundraising to monthly recurring gifts, right? And you are wisely asking people to start giving to you every month instead of every year or instead of, you know, when you get around to asking them in your in your various sundry appeals. And recently I read an article that said, that said monthly giving is bad for major giving. And I was so, so of course, capital campaigns are the biggest major gifts of major gifts, right? I thought, well, do I really believe that that monthly giving is bad for capital campaigns? And honestly, the answer, in my opinion, is no. And let me just tell you why. And then, Amy, I will pass it over to you. (laughs) Okay. The reason, the simple reason is this. The great thing about monthly giving is that you're getting people in the habit of giving. And giving is habitual, right? We develop relationships through the habitual relationships through 
just looking at your credit card receipts and remembering that you gave to the whatever organization this month, the next month, and the month after. And it sort of draws you closer to that organization, even if the relationship isn't very solid. Now, right on top of that, if you identify the people who are your best donors and your monthly donors, you can start cultivating them and going to them for special gifts over and above your monthly, their monthly annual gift. And you know what? If you do that, they will say yes. All right, Amy, to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would just like to echo that. But, you know, the idea that your monthly donors would not be good major donors or campaign donors is so crazy because we know that loyal donors are our number one prospects for major gifts and capital campaigns and planned gifts. And so loyal donors, uh, monthly donors to me is the epitome of a loyal donor. Like they have given you your credit, their credit card number. They're trusting you to take money out of their account or, you know, off their credit card every single month. Um, they are your loyal donors. So who else would be your first in line major prospects and campaign prospects and plan giving prospects, uh, these loyal donors. So, but back to our sort of original topic, which is really, how do we not let the annual funds get cannibalized by the by the capital campaign? And that's a real question for people, especially as we think about year end giving. And to me, it's really about having two distinct cases for support. And when I say cases for support, I'm not talking about a written document or a big, long, fancy brochure. I'm talking about being able to articulate the difference between annual operating ongoing needs and your long-term capital. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a building, but- Capacity, capacity building. Good capacity needs, right? So technology, infrastructure, new staffing, new programs and services, expansion, geographic or physical or whatever it is, right? Capacity building for a capital campaign. And so articulating the difference between what are your ongoing programmatic needs and what are your long-term capacity building efforts that are in in line with your capital campaign, and then telling every single donor, whether it's in person, verbally, or written in the form of a letter, uh, the difference between the two and why it's important to support both. And really your annual fund request is going to be an ongoing, you're gonna come back next year and the year after and the year after, but your capital request is going to be a special one-time big ask over and above their annual gift. And so your loyal donors are going to understand that and wanna support you in an ongoing way, they already do. And then you're gonna ask them to dig deep once every 10 or 20 years for capacity building. And many of them will do that and make a special campaign gift that's significant over and above what they give for, 
for their annual fund. And, and we'll talk more about that if, if we want, but Andrea, anything else? Yes. Before we yes. And Michael questions? has asked a great, a great related question here. And he says he gets a little nervous. The monthly donors might not have major capacity. Now you raise a really good question, Michael, and that's where prospect research comes in. Of course, many of your monthly givers will not have great capacity, but there are many people who have great capacity who give to a, a little, who give little monthly gifts to a lot of organizations. So just because someone gives you fifty or hundred dollars a month or two hundred dollars a month, or ten dollars a month, or ten dollars a month, doesn't mean that they couldn't give you a hundred thousand dollars. Right. So that's where you have to begin to sort out who your donors are. You have to say, well, of the X number of thousands of donors we have, you know, or how many people you have doing monthly giving. Let's see if we can find out how many of those people actually give large gifts to other organizations. How many of those people have the capacity or might have the capacity to give? So you have to begin sorting your donors, but you're going to want to be doing that anyway. And don't be put off by the fact that that they only give you $100 a month. They so, probably give 20 organizations $100 a month. Right. Or, or whatever it is. Or but whatever it I, is. I think that's so important. So let's say you have 100 monthly donors and five of them have the capacity to give you significantly more, right? 50,000 or 100,000 or more. That's amazing. And remember that capital campaigns succeed on, honestly, 20, 30, 40 people giving you significant gifts. And everybody else gives a little bit more than they have been giving. And so don't worry that most of your monthly donors don't have capacity to give a major gift. Most of them probably can give a little more or some more. And that's what you want. But then it's about finding that 5% of people who give you uh, smaller gifts or mid-sized gifts and for a campaign will give you a very large gift. And so, um, of course, most of your monthly donors can't give more or won't give more. And that is totally fine. That's how fundraising works. It's about finding the 5%. Um, and everybody else gives what they can and contributes to the campaign. And it's it's amazing. And you know how I first really come, came to understand that, that notion that, that very wealthy people don't always give very large gifts? I was standing in the gym at the college where my husband taught. This was years ago. And I was waiting for him. I was just looking at the plaque. There was a plaque on the wall. I was just looking at it. I knew a lot of the donors in town. I was already in the fundraising business. So I knew a lot of the donors. And I, I looked, I saw gifts of, of $1,000 or less, right? There were 500 to $1,000. And I saw a number of names on that list that I knew had serious wealth. I mean, I knew they could give a million dollar gift, right? I knew these people. And I thought to myself, gee, why are these people giving $1,000 to the college? Then I look and realize, well, that was the annual fund plaque that they put up a special annual fund plaque. And if I had looked at other plaques, it would have recognized the very same people for a million dollars. Oh yeah, now I understand it. Right, that's right, that's right. They brought it home to me. Great. Well, I was talking to a 
potential client for the toolkit this morning, and they asked the very question, what happens to the annual fund when you go into a campaign? And I said, look, you know, if you do a good job and articulate your cases and you ask everybody for both gifts to the annual and capital, you know, your annual fund should be okay. And it was interesting. The executive director, he said, you know what? Every consultant says that, which is fine. I buy it. He said, the last organization I was at, it didn't happen. The annual fund went down. He said, but the annual fund was a million dollars and it went down by 20%. But the capital campaign raised $30 $30 million. He said, so what do I care? You know, if the annual fund went down a little bit, those donors will come back next year with bigger, you know, it was it was interesting to hear his perspective. He said, the annual fund didn't tank. It went down by a few percentage points. And, you know, because some donors just decided to give to the capital campaign and you give everybody a choice. You ask for to maintain the annual fund. He said, we actually got lots of new donors that hadn't been giving to the annual fund who gave just to the capital campaign. And he said, and then we turned them into annual donors. So, you know, he, he, he didn't, it was, it was interesting. So it's true. You could think about it either way. I'll tell you, tell you what I worry about when, when it comes to capital campaigns and annual fundraising. You know, in many, many capital campaign gifts are, are made in pledges, multi-year pledges. So you might, donors often pledge over three years, sometimes over as many as five years. And I always worry about the third year, right? There's a lot of energy and excitement in the first year. Everybody is excited about the organization. And then gradually, you know, they keep getting getting what amount to bills. Now, organizations, I hope, do it better than that to ask for, to you know, to collect the money for the, those three-year pledges. By the third year, when they are getting that invoice for their final payment and they're expected to give an annual fund gift, you really need to work on your annual fundraising to make it exciting and to keep it up. Because by that time, you know, people get tired of it. The energy is not there anymore. So, so I think there were two lessons in what you just said there. One is do your best to have three-year pledges, not five-year pledges. Five years is a really long time for people to be paying for a campaign gift. You may make exceptions for some of your biggest donors, but the general rule of thumb to me should be a three-year pledge period. The second lesson I think in that has escaped me and, oh, it was do not let your pledge payments look like bills, right? So if you have window envelopes and, you know, people getting your mail can't tell the difference between their bills and your pledge payment reminder, it's time to do something different, right? Right. I mean, you should tell a story on that pledge payment reminder, give them a campaign update, remind them why they're excited to make that payment. Do it in a letter form. Don't make it look like a bill. Okay, good. Right. <laughs> yes, excellent. Give them some, give them, you do an update, tell them about the project and how important their, their pledges to that project. Anyway, I wanna to go to Megan's question. She, she asked the first question and it's a good one. Any recommendations on how to engage a current major donor who has not been responsive? They've already called and emailed. So that's a really interesting question. Yeah. You want me to start? Sure. All right. So, okay. 
There's lots of reasons that donors might not be responsive, even if they're loyal donors or in your case, a major donor. So some things have nothing to do with you, right? There's a sick member of the family, their work schedule's crazy, uh, they're on vacation. There's a million reasons they might not be getting back to you that actually have nothing to do with you. And you know, some persistence will pay off. And, and often we'll hear, oh, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I, I know you called, it just fell to the long bottom of a long list, right? Okay, fine. So keep trying. You know, that being said, they may not want to have personal interaction and they may not want to have it with you. So whenever I have a development director or even an executive director who has done a little bit of outreach, you know, two emails, two messages type of thing, and then wait a few months and then follow up again a few times, maybe try and get somebody else at your organization to touch base. So go on to LinkedIn Figure out, is there anybody on your board? Do you have any volunteers or staff members who's connected to that person? Um, maybe there's somebody else who's better suited to reach out to that particular donor and they'll get a response from somebody that they know. So anyways, so there's lots of uh, different strategies, techniques. I'm glad that you've called and emailed. You know, maybe a handwritten note will get their attention, but Try somebody else at your organization. If you're the development director, have the executive director leave a message and send an email. If the executive director has done that, have a board member reach out and identify themselves as a board member. Um, if there's a, you know, a business or a, a neighbor connection, even better. All right. Well, so one more that? thing on that. And uh, Megan, if you know the donor well, you know, you've had multiple connections and they give every year at a certain time and they haven't. I wouldn't hesitate to send an email with a subject line. Amy, you and I should talk about subject lines. Yeah. Send an email with a subject line that says, are you okay? Right. And it shouldn't be about money. It should be, you know, every year you give around this time, we usually hear from you. I haven't heard from you given the times, you know, we're in, I'm, I'm concerned. I want to make sure that you and your family are okay. If, is there, if not, if there's anything we can do to help. You will get a response back immediately right. when you send an email like that, right? Don't mention your organization. Don't mention money or your gift. Just are you okay? And that, yes, Andrea, absolutely. We get more responses that way than any other email or subject line. But you have to be genuine and authentically checking in and concerned about them, right? Just make right. sure that they're okay. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we will talk about subject uh, subject lines at one at some point or other. Amy, let's make a note to do that because yeah. in these days of email, what you do in your subject line makes a huge difference in the kind of response you get. So think on it a while, and we will have one of these calls where we really start highlighting subject lines. We will be happy to know what subject lines work for you. Are you okay? Is one of them. Um, if Rick has asked something. He said. Any samples or examples of survey questionnaires you might use with the internal staff of an organization launching a new capital campaign? And we do have a lot to tell you. 
One is that in the Capital Campaign Toolkit, should you decide to join the Capital Campaign Toolkit at the time, we do have a terrific assessment uh, specifically about your development staff and a tech assessment and a board assessment that we send to people so that that people can take and and use. Those actually, we hear from people that they really work work wonderfully well. Um, We are working on what we call lead magnets, things we give away occasionally, um, which will have some of that material as well. It's not, they're not quite ready yet, but um, but if you're thinking about joining the Capital Campaign Toolkit, that's one good reason to do so. And proud of me, Amy, I'm so bad promoting. (laughs) No, no, I think that's fine. So, you know, it's wonderful. All of you join us every single Monday. So many of you, I think, feel like you're already part of the toolkit and you absolutely are. Of course, we do have paying subscribing members um, who have access to all of our materials and and resources and support systems that are in the toolkit. So, of course, uh, before you're ready to launch a campaign is the time to actually join the toolkit so that you set your campaign up for success. Um, And you can either work with us individually or in a group setting, um, and we'd be happy to talk to you about that. But yes, Andrea, I think you're absolutely right. Um, You want to find out from your staff what they need, what their expectations are, if they think you're ready for a campaign, what needs to happen. Um, And we do have great survey questions in the toolkit for that. And I think that um, there there is something on our website that I'm happy to look for in a minute. It is, um, now I can't think of what it's called. Um, are you know? Are you ready for a, for a campaign? I'm gonna I'm gonna text David and see if I can get it right now and tell everybody where it is because I think they can get that for free on the okay. site. That's terrific. So meanwhile, um, our anonymous attendees, sometimes people show up as anonymous. They don't really want to be anonymous, but that's just what happened. But anyway, whoever you are, we're happy to have your question. And the the gist of your question is that you're we're get, you're getting ready to to start the quiet phase of your campaign. You you bringing it to the board. You've done your prospects. You've researched your major gift prospects. Uh, you have a prospective capital campaign cabinet. And when your executive director brought it to the board, the board was not happy and was not on board. Now I'm sure there's a backstory to that. And I don't know what that is, but I have to say that it is super troubling to have your board not on board. And you can't go ahead with a capital campaign if your board is not on board. So now that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do things to try to find out, well, what is it that the board is not happy about? Has the board not been involved in any of the planning along the way? Were you just doing those things without board members being being involved or connected? You certainly need to take a step back and work with your board to say, all right, let's find out why the board is not happy or or excited. Why, you know, who is not 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 ready to move ahead with this? There is something under that. Maybe they don't they don't have confidence in the leadership. Maybe they don't haven't signed on to the project. If it's a building project, maybe they're not. Comfort, comfortable or confident with the organizations growing, you, you can't just go ahead without, without your board being on board. The, a, a board can, can undermine a project in more ways than you can imagine. And sometimes you don't even know they're doing it. The campaign just falls flat. 
So by all means, come to a pause, pause your plans, put together a small committee of your board to look at the situation, to figure out why the board is not is not happy, if it can be remedied, if you just need to take more time to develop the project in a way that the board is going to be be supportive of it. Um, I, I would just there. You need to under you need to know what's underneath that. But by all means, the CEO's instincts about at least pausing are are correct in my opinion. All right. So I was I was texting someone to get resources to share. So if you said this, I apologize, Andrea. But I would encourage anybody who's having trouble with their board or wants to make sure that their board is on board. Uh, by going to talk to board members one at a time in advance of a board meeting and so that you don't have one loud, outspoken board member who, you know, objects, run away with the meeting. And often that's what happens. One person who doesn't want to make a gift or doesn't want to ask their friends for money will um, will derail your campaign plans by speaking up loudly and, you know, passionately at a board meeting, and then other people are afraid to speak up. And so you want to get some of those concerns out in one-on-one situations if you can and sort of alleviate some of those concerns. And, you know, I would go to each board member and say, you know what, we're getting ready to vote on how to proceed with a campaign or, you know, whatever stage you're at. Um, what concerns do you have? What what questions do you have? And then so try and head some of those things off. And then the people who have experience with campaigns and are really um, passionate about it, ask them, please speak up at the board meeting. Right. Um, don't 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 stay quiet if there if something comes up. Right. If right. Joe ramrods this railroads, this project. Right. Yeah. Yeah, somebody's got to stand up against against Joe. Poor Joe. I always call him Joe. Right. <laughs> um, so that, that okay. does happen that happen now and again, but um, yeah, board boards are challenging or difficult. And uh, you know, one other thing about that question it said that you would put together a campaign committee. I assume, or I would hope that there would be board members on the campaign committee, and that you would put the campaign committee together after you had board approval to go ahead with the campaign. Right at the Capital Campaign Toolkit, what we strongly advise is that you go through a lot of pre-campaign planning and assessment during which you involve a bunch of people and you do a campaign of what we do, a guided feasibility study. Then the results of that study goes to the board for approval. And only after the board approves the campaign, do you move ahead with the campaign the cabinet or steering committee. So it sounds as though you may have gotten the pieces of it a little you know, a little backwards, a little cattywampus. There's another good word for you. A cattywampus. Cattywampus. Is that in the dictionary, Andrea? I don't know, but I like it. (laughs) All right. So listen, so that honestly, I mean, uh, on the one hand, we encourage organizations not to invest in campaign consultants too early. On the other hand, we do want you to set up your campaign strategy and committee and plans 
correctly so that you don't have to double back or you haven't made mistakes that make things more challenging for yourself down the road. So we would encourage you, you know, several months before you are ready to start your campaign committee or do a feasibility study or bring the board to a vote to reach out and talk to us. And we'll strategize with you what is the best strategy for support uh, we have at the Capital Campaign Toolkit various levels of support that we help organizations at. And, you know, three to six to eight months before your campaign really kicks off, we want to be making sure that you have the right tools, the right materials, the right strategy, the right guidance um, so that you so that your plan is really solid and that your board members are on board and everybody's rowing in the same direction when you kick off or start launch your campaign. Yeah, let's let's do a quick answer to Sky, who asks, is it appropriate for uh, for development directors to attend board meetings? And then we'll hop up to Michael's question. But Sky's is about boards and we're talking about that now. What All right, do you let's, oh, well, I have an immediate yes, but let's turn it over to the chat box. I would love to know. If you're a development director or if you're an executive director or a board member, do your development directors attend board meetings? So in the chat, go ahead and put it in. You know, to me, when development directors aren't invited to the board meeting, it is a big red flag. Um, I think that, you know, and whatever the person is called, but the top fundraising person, it could be VP for development. Now that doesn't mean that they would stay for every vote and every discussion. Sometimes you go into executive committee or there's a sensitive topic or staffing discussion and the the development person would be asked to step out for that portion of the meeting. But to me, a development, the top development person should be working with board members, should know board members, should be participating in the board meeting, and absolutely um, should attend. So we've got lots. Hi, of- if you're looking at the chat, you have your answer. Yes, yes, lots of discussion in the chat. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, for those of you that are listening on the podcast, I'll read some of them. Um, and you know, there there's a range of answers from yes, no. Sometimes there's lots of, uh, but mostly yeses. I have to, I have to say, and there's a few absolutes. Um, and so, yes, I think. Um, you know, we we really encourage. I, I really encourage develop organizations to include their top development person to participate in board meetings. Okay, let's hop up to Michael's question here. I do love it when you all have such great questions. Thank you. Keep them keep them coming. They just they tickle our brains to figure out the answers to these things. So we have Michael says we have multiple programs that need capacity support and multiple historic buildings that need preservation. What is recommended frequency or spacing for requests and campaigns for these multiple projects? I think you mean Uh, you're a historical society in Bordentown, New Jersey. So I'll tell you a funny story of one of our one of our toolkit clients who is facing the very same same question. And she would be happy to have me share share this with you. So it is the Montauk Lighthouse. For any of you who like Lighthouse, everybody knows the Montauk Lighthouse, right? The image is every, it's everywhere. It's on the uh, at the end of Long Island and it's a big, beautiful, historic lighthouse. And, and they came, she came to us 
wanting to know how to raise money to finish the renovation of the historic renovation of the lighthouse. And she had just taken over as executive director and there were some other projects that need, needed to happen. But she was so afraid and they were also afraid that they couldn't raise the however much money it was for the lighthouse. That when I said to her, Mia, you really should put all of these projects together and then do one larger campaign. You might phase it, if you will, but don't don't cherry pick it with a little lighthouse. And then what are you going to do? But she was she and her committee were just too afraid to do that. So they they buckled down with the with the lighthouse campaign. And just last week, she said, you know, I wish I had listened to my <laughs> She said, I should have listened because now the lighthouse has gone over its goal. And now there are all these other projects popping up and and they're they're in a tizzy about how to manage all of that. So in my opinion, the best thing to do is to put together a plan for how you're going to accomplish all of these things and over what period of time, right? This is, you should, you should be planful. You should have a strategic plan that, that lays out all of the various capital needs and program needs that, that you have over a period of time. If some of them are very far down the road, then take, have them for a second campaign. But if some of them need to happen within the next five years, I don't see why you wouldn't put them together in one campaign. And you could have people giving to one project or another if you wanted to, or some people giving to wherever the organization needed the money. If you have a campaign like Mia did, I don't know, her campaign was like for under a million dollars. Now, the challenge of a campaign for under a million dollars for the lighthouse itself is that the lead gift isn't going to be more than $100,000 probably, you know, because maybe $200,000, maybe $250,000. But if you have a campaign for $5 million, then you're looking for someone at the top of that campaign for a million dollars or $2 million, right? The bigger the campaign, the bigger it changes your vision about the donors you're looking for who can help make your campaign successful. So a bunch of little campaigns, while occasionally we encourage you to do those, if you have bigger projects, you should you should take the time to plan so that you actually can have a larger campaign, even if it takes you a little longer. You agree, Amy? I I agree, and I am totally distracted because Misha says that Caddy Wumpus is in the dictionary. <laughs> okay, that you is. Didn't believe one. me, Amy. <laughs> I have to admit, I have never used Caddy Wumpus. I know exactly what you mean when you said it, but it is not in my vocabulary. And for Misha to say that it is in the dictionary, oh my gosh, I can. Thank you for that. I love that. It's such a, I mean, that, that's even a little better than, than cannibalize, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally better than cannibalize. All right. So, all right, listen, uh, we have some more time and we've, we're open to questions. So feel free to put your questions in the chat box. If you brought topics or questions that you yes. wanted us to address, go ahead and open up your chat box, uh, not your chat box, your Q&A box. Q&A box. And go, in the meantime, go ahead. I do have a topic that I was writing on this weekend, Amy, and it, it's a really good topic. I'll just start it with a, with a story. This, this is why you, why you take a moment to put your questions in. So this, the story is this, that I did a, a capital campaign years ago now for, I think it was a YWCA. 
And it was right in the middle of a, of a town where I, where I lived. Right. And it was a pretty good sized campaign. And at one point, the, um, the executive director called me up and she said, we have a problem. We were doing, we were, the campaign was in its quiet, quiet phase. She said, we have a problem. I said, what's the problem? She said, well, my mother decided that she wanted to give a really nice gift to the capital campaign and she wanted to be a surprise for me. So she walked into the, into the organization and went up to the desk and she said, I'd like to give however much the gift was $10,000. I'd like to give a gift to the capital campaign. And the woman sitting at the desk looked at her and said, well, I don't know anything about a capital campaign. <laughs> Let me call someone. So she called the development department. Well, there was no one in the development department. So she called the head of the program. Well, the program person didn't know about the capital campaign either, right? And the mother of the executive director walked out scratching her head, thinking, you know, my daughter needs to learn a thing or two about running an organization. <laughs> Right. And that actually took us in a whole direction of of informing everyone in that organization about the campaign. So the mother actually the mother's visit to this organization actually was really interesting. But for all of you doing capital campaigns, you can't be in the quiet phase of your campaign without making sure that at least the public facing people in your organization know what it is you're doing. Right. They need to be able to answer that question. And it's a great test to have your mother go into the organization and say she wants to make a gift or call up and see what happens. Yeah. You know, I was actually thinking back to Rick's question about surveying your staff before a campaign. So there's all sorts of things that you could survey your staff about. And it's, you know, uh, you know what we were talking about in terms of readiness assessments for your campaign. Uh, that's one topic. But in terms of making sure that they know some basic answers to campaign questions and, you know, knowing about your campaign, it's a great it's a great cultivation tool even to use with your staff members that they should be able to answer some very high level uh, questions about your campaign and know that you're you're having one, even if it's not in the public face. Um, all right, let's go to the questions now. So somebody's asking, is it okay to ask for a multi-year annual fund pledge while you're having campaign donors doing their own multi-year campaign pledges? Um, and, and then the question goes on about giving clubs. So I'm going to put it over to the chat and encourage people to say whether or not they have giving clubs at their organization and maybe a thumbs up or thumbs down, you know, maybe one, one word or one line about why they work or why, why they don't work as well as they'd hoped. Um, but, you know, yes, I think that when you're asking for an, a campaign gift, you can also ask for a multi-year annual pledge. So let's say you have a donor who's been giving $1,000 to your annual fund, to go back to Andrea's example, you might say to them, listen, we're here to ask you to consider a $25,000 uh, gift. Well, let me do something. Yeah, uh, let me do something that's divisible by three for a three-year pledge, a $15,000 campaign gift and over the next three years, so $5,000 a year. And we'd like to allocate $1,000 of the $5,000 
um, to the annual fund and $4,000 to the campaign. So really at the end of three years, you would have given $1,000 a year for three years to the annual fund as you've been doing and $12,000, right? The $4,000 times three to your to the campaign. And so you could do something like that. Andrea, what do you think about multi-year annual fund pledges? Yeah, you know, they, I, I have I have debated this with people. I am a stick, I am a I guess I'm just old-fashioned, honestly. <laughs> but um, but I believe that there is something healthy about going to talk to your annual fund donors every year. Mm. And well, I think monthly giving is fine. I think even then every year you should have it as a priority to be in touch with those donors. And the more you have things on a pledge cycle, the more things are on a pledge cycle, the more you're focusing on getting more people to give annual fund gifts and the less you're focusing on actually getting to know the donors. So I just worry about it. Good point. I know what happens when there's not money on the table, right? Then it just feels like work. Good point. But I tell you, there are a lot of really smart development professionals who really don't agree with me. So just so you know. No, so no, your point is well taken. You need to do a really good job of stewardship and cultivation, regardless of whether, you know, where they are in the pledge cycle. Don't ignore them for three years because at the end of the three years, you're going to be sadly uh, sad to find out that they're not giving again and they're some of your best donors. So making sure. So I think it's a good point, Andrea. All right. On one of these conversations I had with another consultant some time ago, he was totally, you know, he's done a lot of university fundraising and they tend to do this in universities and, and these comprehensive campaigns. I said, you know, why, why would you, why would you do that? Why would you have people pledge multiple years for what is really annual operating, right? That's, he said, well, if I have those gifts tied down, I can just go and worry of go and work on getting some new ones. And I said, bingo, that's exactly the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Amy's uh, asking, following a capital campaign, do you still recommend trying to upgrade ask amounts on appeals for those same donors? Consider most capital campaign donor donations were one-time gifts. Yeah, so... Uh, so there is some there is there is a school of thought that says that let's say you get a capital campaign gift for let's say fifteen thousand we'll use Amy's Amy's number fifteen thousand a year pledged over three years right five thousand dollars a year for three years and that person before the campaign had been giving a thousand dollars a year in annual fund so there is some talk that at the end of the campaign you would try to increase their annual gift to the five thousand that they were able to do for the capital campaign. Now, I'm actually not much in favor of that. I am certainly in favor of stewarding people and treating them well enough so that you're always showing them the opportunities to give more, right? But to suggest that that just because they've given a three-year campaign pledge of $15,000, $5,000 a year, they should keep right on doing that, I think is not the right strategy, right? People determine the amount they're going to give to a special gift in a different way, mostly, than they do annual fundraising, right? You think about your annual fundraising as coming often out of your checkbook or out of something that's easy, 
right? It's relatively easy money. When you give a much bigger gift for a capital campaign, you may be talking about having to, you know, to liquidate securities or to reach into some a different pocket. And you're, you make that commitment because you know it's not going to be an annual commitment. That's why you can go up. So I encourage everyone to be talking to people about upping their gifts with annual fundraising, but don't be flippant about it. That just because you could give 5,000 during the campaign years means you can do that going forward. Yeah. I mean, if they were giving a thousand dollars a year to annual fund, I would suggest asking for 1500 or 2000, but you don't, you want to distinguish between the campaign and annual fund. So when, when you go back to annual fund and the campaign celebrated and finished, celebrate that big gift with them and say, listen, you know, and now we want to make sure that you continue to support our bigger vision and our ongoing programs and services. Will you continue to give at the $2,000 level? So there's room for growth, but not at the same level as the campaign. All right. Both of these next questions, both from Christine and from Miriam, are about this question of including or not including the annual fund into the campaign. And and the fact that we have these questions, you know, is, is it is complicated and it is not always simple. And I, Miriam, the, the answer to your donors who say, you know, why are you including annual fund with with your capital campaign is, well, do you think we should do that? You know, we think it might be easier for people to think about giving, you know, giving to both of them. And if they don't, separate them out. Right. Here's what happens when you include annual fund with your capital campaign, you raise the capital campaign goal to include whatever it is you will raise through annual fund for the duration of the campaign. It is a common uh, approach to capital campaigns. I myself find it complicated. I find it easier to explain to people that you want them to continue with your annual fund gifts and the campaign gift is campaign goal is separate and by itself. But many, many people do it the other way and find that it works for them. So if you're finding that your donors are giving you pushback on it, you can change. You can change it. That's why you're doing the, the study. Right. To find out what people want you to do. And that's a great thing to thing to give on to say, well, maybe we shouldn't do it that way. It's not a problem. Yeah. That's right. What we learned in our feasibility study is that we should really separate out the asks from annual fund and capital campaign. So that's what we're going to do. Good. Uh, Let's see. Is it possible to offer percentage fees? No, it is not possible to do that, Dana. It is not appropriate. In fact, it's sort of against the rules, the ethics rules of fundraising. and if so, okay, say the question because people listening. Okay, are not it, is question. it possible to offer a percentage of fees raised to a development consultant? What I believe you mean is, can you pay a development consultant to come and work for you, base and pay them a percentage of whatever it is that person helps you raise? That's the way I translate your question. If that's not right, by all means, say. And the answer to that question is no. You can't do that. Right. You can't bring someone in and say, "Okay, raise us a million dollars and we'll pay you 10 percent of that. Right. It it just isn't appropriate or isn't isn't done done in the field for a whole host of host of reasons. 
Um, Amy, why don't you talk a little more about that? Yeah, so specifically what Andrea is referring to, it is against the AFP, which is the Association of Fundraising Professionals Code of Ethics and Ethical Standards. So you cannot pay um, a percentage of what's raised. It's bad for donors, it's bad for the organization, and it's bad for um, consultants. And the reality is that consultants can give the best or the worst advice in the world, whatever, let's pretend it's the best advice in the world. Um, but we can't control what you do as organizations. So we can't, pre- we can't predict if you're going to follow our advice and we can't control the donors. Um, and we don't want anybody putting undue pressure on your donors to give gifts because they're, the payment is going to be related to it. And that is one of the many reasons why you can't do that. It has to be a flat fee. Um, so okay. let me hop, hop back to, to Christine uh, Lucas's question because we didn't answer it well. We got kind of stuck on the other side of that side of it. And, and what you've asked is if you're raising money for several things for the, for the campaign, and if you, let, let's say you were, I mean, I'm just going to make this up, you're raising a million dollars for a new roof and you're raising, you know, $5 million for, a, a, I don't know, a rent a building renovation and you're raising X number of dollars to, to put in your endowment fund. And can you say to the donors, well, once we have raised the money for the new roof, then the money is going to go into our other renovation pot. And once we've done that, the rest is going to go into endowment. You know, you certainly can, can do that. For the most part, when you have a campaign with multiple objectives, which is what you're talking about, people, um, sometimes people say, I want to give to the root fund, right? Or I want to give to another fund. But for the most part, they don't. For the most part, they're happy to see all the things you're raising money for. They're happy to put their, to give their money to the campaign, which will fund all of those things, right? And so you're, you're trying not to encourage people to restrict their money to one fund or another, Though occasionally that's that's what happens. So I wouldn't I wouldn't set up your campaign to push that, right? I would set up your campaign to diminish that. And then if it happens, you can say our roof is fully paid for. It says we don't need two roofs. All of the remaining gifts to the campaign are gonna go to whatever else, right? It's gonna go to. Right. But mostly budgets are like are like cauldrons right they're like a witch's cauldron and you dump money into it and you stir it around and the money is not anybody's particular money the money all the money fits together and then pays for everything that you need to do that makes sense all right let's let's wrap up start to wrap up with vicky's question vicky's asking what are your thoughts on starting to build a new facility before a hundred percent of the funds are secured do you see donors waiting for construction to start before they donate? Or do you see more often that donors think they're building? Yes. Uh, yeah. So they don't need your help. I do have a really, a really strong answer to that, Vicki, which is that that you can raise money for a building project until the ribbon is cut. And in fact, people often love hard hat tours and love to see what's going on and will give as a result of that. So, and very few people ever ask, well, gee, doesn't, don't, isn't the fact that you're starting construction, doesn't that mean you don't need my money? Very few people think about it that way, which is interesting. And if they do, you can say, well, we do have, a, you have financing, sort of interim financing, 
but we need to raise all of the money where we just have have this period in which to raise it. And we want the community to benefit from our project as soon as possible. So you don't have to raise all the money before you start construction. It's the short answer. But you should have raised some of the money. Yes, a good amount of the money. You don't want to you don't want to go start construction if you don't have a really good idea that you can raise the money. Right. That's the gist of it. You don't want to get halfway through and have the cranes have to grind to a halt. That's a bad idea. Yeah, that is a bad (laughs) idea. idea. (laughs) All right. So listen, early on in the pandemic, when we started these calls, oh my gosh, you know, a year and a half ago, one of the things that we focused on was self-care and how are you getting through? So I'd love to see in the chat box, what are the end of summer pre fundraising, fall craziness strategies that you are using for self-care to take care of yourself, something that you did this summer, something that you're planning to do this fall. Um, So go ahead and put it in the chat box. Um, uh, In the meantime, while you're doing that, uh, somebody's asking, will we be able to get a recording of this information to review um, and maybe even share with your board members and other staff members? So you can listen to the recording on our podcast. It is called All About Capital Campaigns, and you can go to any podcasting app where you listen to your podcasts and download All About Capital Campaigns. And this recording that happens every Monday will be up uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, the latest, I think always on Tuesdays. Um, So absolutely, you can listen to the the recording. But let's go back to what are people doing to uh, self-care? Amy's going uh, going to breweries, local breweries and antique shops, looking for vinyl records. That sounds like fun. Oh Guys my taking daily walks and Miriam's been running more, signed up for a 10K. Woohoo! Meditation oh apps. I love it. Went to Houston for your birthday weekend from you to museums. That's great. Swim or practice yoga. Visit your children and grandchildren whom you haven't seen in so long. Isn't that fantastic? Uh, Lori's um, not working on Sundays the entire day. No checking phones or or uh, I'm, I'm ad-libbing here, but no checking phones or emails yes. on Sundays. Donna Rich is doing Qigong. I love that. Meditation <laughs> and Qigong. Amy, what are you doing? I, I do take a lot of walks. I try and get outside as often as possible. And every day, you know, having the dog helps, of course. Now, I don't walk because the dog needs a walk. I walk because I need a walk and the dog's a good excuse. <laughs> um, but I, I do. I, I'm trying to read more before bed and getting off my phone at night. And so I've got my pile of books here. Uh, yeah. What about you, Andre? My fishing and eating fresh tomatoes. Boy, I'll go with eating fresh tomatoes this time of year. Oh, yum. I'm enjoying some cooking and having some people over for yesterday. We had some people over for brunch. I enjoyed that. I like walking. Um, I've been reading, reading novels. I enjoy, I enjoy that. 
sometimes, Amy, sometimes in the middle of the day, I hop off for an hour and read a novel. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. We love having you here on our weekly toolkit talks. And, you know, if you miss one, you can catch us on the uh, on the podcast, which is all about capital campaigns. But those of you listening to the podcast, join us every Monday live for toolkit talks. And you can find it at just www.toolkittalks.com and sign up to be alerted and get the link to join us live and ask your questions. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Andrea, for joining everybody. Good to see you, Amy. Bye. Thanks for joining Amy and Andrea for today's All About Capital Campaigns. To learn more about them and their work together, go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com.